Tonight we're in Exodus chapter 12. We have uh, one other thing that we'd like to do tonight. We need a little help on this, James. One other thing that we'd like to do is uh, Joel is going in for some surgery tomorrow. Joel, can you wave your hand back there? This is Joel. And uh, Mark Kohler is also uh, going to be, he's having some, uh, Joel's going to have some polyps taken off of his uh, vocal cords. And uh, Mark is going to have some uh, neck surgery, some vertebrae fused in the back of his neck. And uh, we need to pray for both of those gentlemen tonight. And uh, let's do that now. Father, thank you for your goodness toward us, Lord. And we thank you that we can come to you in prayer and we can express our needs, our concerns to you, Father. And we can beseech you for help. And Father, we do want to intercede for Joel tonight. We pray that you'll guide the doctors tomorrow as they, as they operate on him. Lord, just may everything go smoothly. May the surgery be successful. Lead and guide as, as you work in his life. And Father, we pray for Mark as well, that you'll comfort their hearts tonight. Prepare Mark for the surgery, Lord, and, and bless the doctors tomorrow as they perform the surgery on him. We love both these men and their families, and we just pray you'll... You'll bless them tomorrow as they, as they go through the surgery and, we, and help them have a speedy recovery. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Exodus chapter 12, but before we read and study the scriptures tonight, I thought we would go back in the time capsule and watch it on video. How's that? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the wilderness? Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The pillar of fire. It is the grave of God. Preach the fire of God. Gather your families and your flocks. We must go with old speed. Yes. Go where? To drown in the sea? How long will the fire hold Pharaoh back? We'll hold After this day, you shall see his chariots no more. No! You'll be dead under them. No. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand.
sea with the blast of his nostrils. Lead them through the midst of the waters. His will be done. He opens the waters before them, and he bars our way with fire. Let us go from this place. Men cannot fight against a god. Better to die in battle with a god than live in shame. Praise God and down into it! didst blow with thy winds, and the sea covered them. Who is like unto thee, O Lord? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I think that's the end. So let it be written, so let it be done. What a great movie. You know, like I say, when, that, when he raises the rod, like I don't know what the three girls are about. You know when they flash to the three girls? And... But when he raises the rod like this, you know, and the waters part, I don't think there's ever been a more dramatic scene in all of, of movie history. What a, what a neat scene. But that's just a movie. Can you imagine what it would have been like? to have actually been there and seen God work the miracle. We're going to read about it tonight. Exodus chapter 12. Lord, again, we ask that you bless our Bible study tonight. Lead us and guide us as we go through these chapters. In Jesus' name, amen. Every year now for the last 3,450 years, Jews all over the world have celebrated the ancient feast called Passover. Jewish families join in a Seder or in an order or ceremony that revolves around a meal. And on that night, they remember the events that are recorded in Exodus chapter 12. During the Passover meal, there is a moment when the youngest child in the family approaches the father. And he asks the father four questions. He asks first, why is this night distinguished from all other nights? On this night, we eat only unleavened bread. Then he asks, On all other nights, we eat any kind of herbs, but on this night, only bitter herbs. Why? Thirdly, he asks, On all other nights, we do not dip or dip the vegetables in the salt water, but tonight we dip twice. Why? And then lastly, he says, On this night, we recline in our chairs at the table. Why? And then the father uses those four questions as a springboard to recount the story that we're going to read about tonight here in Exodus chapter 12. 
God instituted the Passover because he wanted the events that are recorded in this chapter remembered by every succeeding Hebrew generation, remembered even by you and I here tonight. Well, verse 1 begins, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now the next day the Hebrews would leave Egypt and 400 years of harsh bondage would be over. It would mark a new beginning for Israel. They would be free. This was so monumental that God altered the calendar to mark its significance. Prior to their deliverance, the first month on the Jewish calendar was in the fall. In what is our September-October, it was called the month of Tishri. Now, God says, it's to be celebrated, the new year is to be celebrated in the spring at this event in the month of Nisan. Today, Jews recognize both New Year's, incidentally. Tishra is the first month on their civil calendar, and Nisan is the first month on the sacred or the religious calendar. Now, as we study through the Passover, I hope you'll remember Paul's words. These are so important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And in a million ways, the Passover is a vivid type of Jesus Christ. It foreshadows the freedom that He brings when we give our lives to Him, when He enters into our lives. And here is a good example of this typology, the fact that the calendar itself was altered. As the Passover launched a new day for Israel, the work of Jesus marks a new day in world history. Sparks a change in our calendar as well. It's interesting, Pope Gregory replaced the distinction Anno Mundi, or the year of the world, with Anno Domini, or the year of the Lord. And even to this day, we mark our years accordingly. Gets the abbreviation AD. We're living in 2005 AD, or Anno Domini, or the year of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that rather than date the years back to creation as they did before Christ, Western countries today count their years from the birth of Christ, from the year of our Lord. Jesus, too, has altered our calendar. Well, in verse 3, God tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Years later, the rabbi specified that you needed at least 10 people per lamb. And if you had more than 20 people at the Seder, then a second lamb was also required. So it was 10, 10 people per lamb, 20, and you have to sacrifice another lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So, on the tenth of Nisan, a lamb was chosen to be sacrificed. Incidentally, this is the same day, a few days, four days actually before Passover, that Jesus rode his donkey down the Mount of Olives to the cheers of the crowd. You know, the Jews thought that they were welcoming a king in reality, they were also choosing a Passover lamb, according to Exodus 12. 
He says, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, or the Passover day. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Four days later, on the Passover, the lamb was supposed to be taken to the tabernacle and sacrificed to God. Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. We know that. And he died, incidentally, just before twilight. Verse 7 tells us, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And on that night in Egypt, the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorposts and on the thresholds of each of the homes of the Hebrews, the people who believed in God's promise. Also that night, they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Remember, the unleavened bread was a symbol of their faith. They were leaving Egypt the next day and therefore didn't have time for the bread to rise. They didn't even put the leaven in it. It was a symbol of faith. The bitter herbs were a reminder of the 400 years of harsh and bitter bondage that they had experienced. Verse 9, Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. In other words, this sacrifice was to be totally and completely consumed. No leftovers. This is why Jesus died such a horrific death. Jesus gave his all on the cross. He was totally consumed. There was nothing left over of his sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. He paid the full penalty of our sin. He says, and thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. No need to put the cold cuts in the fridge. Just get ready to leave. These Jews believed that they would leave Egypt the next day. So they spent that night in their boots. Their bags were packed. Their staff was in their hand. They believed that deliverance was coming the next day. Moses said of the meal that they were eating, It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Notice, even the firstborn of the animals will die. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And as we talked about last week, the judgment on Egypt was a direct assault by God on the different idols of the Egyptians. Each plague, in a sense, called out another Egyptian deity and showed God's superiority over that Egyptian idol. And even this last plague that is about to come, the death of the firstborn, was an assault against the Egyptian gods. They believed that Pharaoh's firstborn, his heir, was also considered to be a god. And so God is showing his superiority even over this last Egyptian god, the Pharaoh himself. And note the Hebrews were as vulnerable to this last plague as the Egyptians. You know, we discussed how last week that even Israel, while in Egypt, stooped to worship the foreign gods of the Egyptians. There were a few plagues that God allowed to bypass the Hebrews living in Goshen. But not this one. Death is going to come on Israel as well as the Egyptians unless they take advantage of the remedy that God prescribes for them in verse 13. He says, Now the blood 
shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Thus the name Passover. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now understand, their salvation had absolutely nothing to do with the purity of the people that were in the house. In fact, if you were a moral person and you assumed that judgment would pass over you because of your goodness, well, say goodbye to your big brother. He's going to die. Death is going to strike. No, salvation came to the folks, no matter how pure or impure they happened to be, but it came to the folks who knew they needed the blood and took the time and made the effort to apply the blood to the doorposts and to the thresholds of their house. And thus they trusted in God's promise to accept that blood as the payment for their sin. And this is how eternal destinies get decided today. This is the means of salvation even as we talk about it today. If you trust in your own merit, no matter how moral or how good or how righteous you might think you are, you're a goner, friend. It's not going to save you. Judgment will strike your house. Death will come. But in you, if you trust in the blood of Jesus, if you apply the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the Passover lamb, our Passover, Jesus Christ, to the doorposts and to the thresholds of your heart, then judgment will pass over you. This is how salvation comes even today. Well, verse 14 tells us, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Unleavened bread was a twofold type. In the Bible, leaven speaks of sin. It's really the perfect picture of sin, in fact. It, it corrupts by puffing up. <laughs> Isn't that what sin does in our lives? It, it plays on our pride. It corrupts us by puffing us up, thinking more of ourselves than we should. And ridding a house of leaven is a picture of us ridding our lives of pride and the evil it produces. And unleavened bread also, of course, speaks of faith. As we've already mentioned, Israel believed that their deliverance was imminent. They were ready to leave at a moment's notice. And a Christian needs that same attitude because, guys, at any moment now, God could call us out of our Egypt and could suddenly call us home to heaven and deliver us from this corrupt world into His glorious kingdom. So be ready. Well, verse 16 says, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month of evening. The Passover was actually on the 14th, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the Passover and lasted for the next seven days. So actually two feasts, Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed. And according to God's command here, that this night be observed throughout generations, 
Next Sunday night, we're going to put a table down front here in the sanctuary, and we're going to turn our sanctuary into a Jewish living room, and we're going to invite you to come and participate in the Passover Seder with us. And so it'll be a very special time. Your kids will enjoy it. It'll be a, a delightful time next Sunday night. I encourage you to come back. He says, For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. God was serious about this typology. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Now, the blood was always applied, we'll find this throughout the Old Testament, with a hyssop branch. And a hyssop branch was basically a leafy kind of branch that would absorb and retain fluids. And so it was the perfect uh, mode of capturing the blood and then being able to sprinkle it on whatever it was that, that was to be dedicated. So that you were to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their, knee, their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. That night the destroyer, perhaps an angel, we're not sure, came on every bloodless house in Egypt. On every house where the blood had not been spread on the doorposts and thresholds. That night the destroyer entered those houses and their firstborn died. Now remember, seven million people lived in Egypt at that time. That's the population of metro Atlanta, basically. We're about six million people. It's maybe a little bit, uh, little bit bigger than metro Atlanta. But imagine every house in suburban Atlanta losing its firstborn in one night. Imagine the tragedy. Imagine the heartache. That's the scale of death that we're talking about. It was an enormous tragedy. There is some historical evidence for this judgment, by the way. Pharaoh Amenhotep II, who we believe may have been the Pharaoh of the Exodus, he was succeeded by a son, Tumosis IV, one of the King Tuts, by the way. 
There's an ancient slab that's engraved with writing that was found near the Great Sphinx there in Egypt. And it records a dream that was received by Tumultus IV. And in this dream, he tries to legitimize his right to the throne. Now, obviously, if he had been Amenhotep's firstborn, his right to rule would have never been questioned. But because he goes through this elaborate justification for assuming the throne, apparently he was not the firstborn. Evidently, he was a younger brother who somehow, because an older brother perhaps had died, had to justify his claim. The original heir died, and we assume because of this tenth plague. Well, verse 30 tells us, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians heard the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. And now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They were just so anxious to get the Hebrews out of their hair that they just gave them their treasures and their gold and their silver. There was some peaceful plundering that went on. I suppose you could consider these, these things back wages for 400 years of bondage and slavery, I would imagine. And also, they will become the materials that will later be used for the construction of the tabernacle. For when we get over to that point, a lot of gold, a lot of silver was needed to build the 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 worship quarters of the Hebrew people. Well, verse 37 tells us, Then the children of Israel joined, with, joined from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides children. 600,000 men, figure they had wives, most of them did, they had children, uh, probably 2 to 3 million people. 2 to 3 million Jews came out of Egypt. And a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now this mixed multitude included everyone who had jumped on Moses' bandwagon during these ten plagues. I'm sure there were some Egyptians who believed, wow, the God of the Hebrews must truly be God. They must have jumped on the bandwagon. They must have believed in God's promise and spread blood in, on their doorposts and on their thresholds. There were probably slaves from other countries who believed. There may have been Egyptians who had married Hebrews that also believed. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. When you work for the Pharaoh, you don't get a lot of time off to go shop for the Exodus. And so they were all pretty, I mean, they were just kind of leaving with what they had. Didn't have... Too much time to prepare. Verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years. Notice this. 
On that very day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. According to verse 41, the Hebrews left Egypt on the exact day that they entered 430 years earlier. They left on the anniversary of Joseph of Jacob's arrival when he came down with his sons and came down to Egypt. It was God's way of affirming to them that he had never forgotten them that whole time. That he remembered the covenant. He brought them out on the same day that they had entered in. He continues describing the Passover. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is brought, bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. Remember, circumcision was the, was the mark, the identifying mark of God's people in the Old Testament. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. And this is why Jesus' bones were not broken. You remember when he died upon the cross, the Roman soldier came to break his legs, but he saw that he was already dead, and not one bone of Jesus was broken. And the reason was, is that Jesus was a fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, there, his bones was not to be broken. Well, verse 47 tells us, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to their armies. Notice that. According to their armies. Now remember, this is a ragtag, undisciplined, unskilled group of slaves. They have zero military training. And yet this is the third time now they are referred to as the armies of the Lord. Evidently, God delivered the, the Hebrews from the Egyptians and from their bondage in order to fight his battles. And it was vital that they be ready. And guys, the same is true for us. The Christian life is a battle. I don't know if you've discovered it yet, but you get delivered out of bondage in order to fight some battles. The same is true for us. It's a struggle to overcome sin. It's a struggle to win over sinners to Christ. And we have to be ready for the battle. We have to be ready for the struggle. God delivers us from bondage. And once He does, He arms us for warfare. He thrusts us into spiritual combat. So expect a battle. Well, in chapter 13, God frees the Hebrews. And when He does, He gives them two reminders of their deliverance. They're to keep this feast of unleavened bread that we've already talked about. And they're to offer to God the firstborn of their flocks and of their families. And both memorials teach us some important spiritual lessons. First one tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Now since God saved the firstborn of the Hebrews from the destroyer, God now expects for the Hebrews to give that firstborn back to Him. To consecrate or to dedicate their firstborn to the Lord. Here's the principle for us. The redeemed of the Lord belong to the Lord. The Lord saved their firstborn, so their firstborn belong to the Lord. You know, you don't buy a car for someone else to own and drive. I guess unless you're a parent of a teenager. But, but if you're a, a normal, sane adult, you don't buy a car for someone else to drive. You don't buy a car and then turn it over and give it to someone else. You own it. It's in your name. But you turn it over and you let somebody else drive it. No, what you buy, what you purchase, you own. You use for your own purposes. You expect to possess what you purchase. And likewise, when God purchases a person, He does so with the intent of taking possession of that person. God didn't save you and deliver you from bondage just so that you can now wander off away from Him. Oh no! God saved you in order to rule over you and to possess you and to lead and guide your life and to use you for His glorious purposes. What God purchases, He possesses. He wants to rule what he redeems, especially the people he saves. We find that here in verse 1. Well, verse 3 tells us, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you you are going out in the month of Abib. Now, Now the Hebrew word ab means green. And the month of Abib was the same month that everything turned green. March slash April. Abib is another name for the month of Nisan. And why we the same month is referred to by the two different names here, I really don't know. But it was called Nisan earlier, it's called Abib here. It's really the same month. And in the month of Abib, along with the Passover, the Jews were to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. I do know though when Jesus delivers you everything starts turning green in your life. Things start sprouting, new growth takes place, flowers begin to bloom, new life begins to permeate your your life. Things become exciting and fresh and wonderful again. A springtime comes when you give your life to Jesus. Well, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Uptites and the Adesites and the Mosquitoites, which He swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. The Passover was a symbol of our deliverance. And notice the Passover comes first, followed by this feast of unleavened bread, which was the seven days afterwards. 
But I want you to notice that the same progression takes place in our lives. When we come to Jesus, our Passover, He takes us just as we are and right where we're at. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? That we don't have to clean up our act ahead of time. That we don't have to clean up our life. That we don't have to get all of the leaven out of our life before we come to Jesus. We're just so thankful that He takes us just as we are right where we're at. We're, we're at and He allows us to start wherever we come to Him in faith. But we're also thankful that He doesn't leave us that way. But that He begins to work in our lives. And He begins to change us and clean us up. And that's what happens here. You know, He doesn't run around and look in your house to see if there's any leaven before He accepts you. He accepts you because He sees blood on the doorpost and the thresholds of your heart. God doesn't expect you to clean out all the leaven to be saved. But once you've passed over, once you've been saved, then you will want to rid your life of the leaven, of the sin, of the pride, of the things that are displeasing to God. We'll want to get rid of the leaven. We'll want this feast of unleavened bread to follow our Passover. He says, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And notice the strong emphasis here on sharing your deliverance story with your children. This comes up over and over again. This is why they were to keep this feast as a memorial. Because the succeeding generations needed to hear this salvation narrative, this deliverance story of how God had delivered their parents and their forefathers. And guys, this is also true for you and me as Christian parents. We need to talk to our kids about our deliverance story. We need to make sure that our kids understand what Jesus means to us. Tell them about your conversion. Rehearse it with them. Go over with them over and over your sacred history. It's vitally important. This is what God wants for us to pass on to our children and even to our grandchildren. Verse 11 tells us, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Now the law of the firstborn required that every big brother lamb, every big brother goat, every big brother cow was to be sacrificed to the Lord. The firstborn of every clean creature was sacrificed except for two species of creature. Donkeys and humans were to be redeemed instead of sacrificed. And it's interesting that donkeys and humans kind of get clumped together. There's probably some profound reasons for that we'll talk about in just a minute. It says, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, so in other words, if you had a firstborn donkey, you, you just swapped 
a lamb. You had to sacrifice a lamb for that donkey. And so the donkey was redeemed, basically. Humans were redeemed with a sum of money. We'll study this later when we get into the, to the law of Moses. So, you know, I'd be, I was the firstborn in my family. My parents would have taken me down to the temple or tabernacle, and they would have offered a sum of money to buy me back. And that's why you had to be really good until you were redeemed. So they would buy you back. <laughs> Actually, they bought you back when you were a baby, and there's probably a good reason <laughs> why that transaction was made while you were a baby. Which, by the way, you know why God created teenagers, don't you? It'd be a lot easier to say goodbye to them after they'd been teenagers for a few years, isn't it? Except for my teenagers, they're wonderful. As he's talking to somebody, they're one. My teenagers are wonderful. Gonna gonna hate to see them go. Love you, man. Now I, I mentioned that humans and donkeys are paired together here. An interesting interesting combination, and it's because you know this. Both are notorious for being stupid and stubborn. We can act like a donkey sometimes. We can be as stubborn as a donkey and how it gets us in trouble. You know, every time I watch the movie and see Yul Brenner, <laughs> what a stubborn cat he was. That Pharaoh was a stubborn guy, no doubt about it. We can be just as stubborn, though, can't we? We can be stiff-necked. We can resist God's will. You know, God loves us. He wants what's best for us. Why is it that we aren't eager to cooperate? With any directives he might give us. You know, only once in Scripture are donkeys ever portrayed in a favorable light. You go back, you research it. If you come up with another place, you let me know. But only once in Scripture are donkeys seen in a favorable light. Jesus rode a donkey at his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that next Sunday morning, Palm Sunday. Which teaches us a lesson, though. Just like a donkey... I become useful to God only when Jesus holds the reins of my life. Only when Jesus is riding me and in control of me and directing my life. That's when I become useful to God. And only then. Well, verse 14 tells us, So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you say to him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And again, God established these feasts and these laws to make certain that future generations would never forget the work of deliverance and redemption that God had wrought. And my question to you, do your kids know your salvation story? Have your kids actually been told of your conversion to Christ? Of the work that God did in your life? Please, let's share our sacred history with our children. That's what we should be getting out of this. Verse 16 tells us, 
It shall be as a sign on your hand and as, a, and as frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now God is saying, basically, never forget what I've just done. I mean, let this guide your thoughts. Let this focus your actions. Let this be on the back of your hand, wherever you reach, remember this. Let this be in the middle of you, between your eyes, wherever you look. Remember what I've done for you. That's what he's saying. Of course, the rabbis took verse 16 literally. And they literally bound this story. Snippets from scripture describing the exodus. They bound these things in leather pouches on the back of their hands and on their foreheads. You've probably seen pictures of the phylacteries, the leather pouches that are strapped around and they've got all these straps around their arms and they've got the pouches here and then they strap it around their head and they've got little pouches here. Those contain actually little snippets of scripture, little scrolls that they keep between their eyes and on the back of their hands, literally trying to keep the law in a literal sense, carrying the story between their eyes and on the back of their hands. Well, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God let the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now, now there's an old joke you've probably heard. Why did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? And the answer because Moses, like most men on a trip, was too stubborn to stop and ask for directions. Now, all that, although that joke illustrates a, a real truth about the male species, it's not biblical. Because Moses was not one who was led by the children of Israel. Moses was led by God. God was his guide. God directed him. God guided him. Here, God told him not to go by way of the Philistines, but go toward the Red Sea. There was a reason. He didn't want them to, to come up to a conflict, to an a, a opposing army, and them get discouraged. And so he, he had a purpose. God didn't lead Israel out of bondage to abandon them. He led them. He set them free so that they could follow him. And this is why you and I have been forgiven. This is why we have been set free. Not to be abandoned, not to be on our own, not to just be wandering around, but to follow Jesus. We've been freed to follow. God doesn't save us so we can just pack a pew or wander off and do our own thing. After we're saved, we embark on a journey. That's what the Christian life is. It's a journey. It's a journey of faith. God promises Israel a new land. But first he has to teach them a new way, a new way to live. And so God will first take them to Mount Sinai where Moses will get his marching orders, where God will give him the law, and he will teach these people how to worship. Well, verse 19 tells us, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Solomon, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. 
Israel had a miracle for a map. They had a supernatural guidance system. In front of the camp, you could see a column of cloud in the daytime, and you could see a wall of fire by night. Wow. When God walked through the animal parts, remember, to seal the covenant with Abraham. You remember when we talked about that a few weeks ago now? God appeared to Abraham as a burning torch and as a smoking censer. In other words, as fire and as cloud. And for the next 40 years, this is how God is going to lead the Hebrews through the Midianite desert. By a cloud by day, by a fire by night, when God moves, Moses will move. When God stops, Moses will stop. Well, chapter 14 contains one of the most spectacular miracles in all of the Bible. Actually, in all of time. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hararoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. Unfortunately, we can no longer identify these locations, and thus the exact site of the crossing of the Red Sea is unknown to us. There, there are a lot of speculations, but we can't be for sure. Now, now people speculate, though, that it must have been among some high rock walls, and some steep cliffs, because when the Egyptians attack, the Hebrews make no escape, attempt to escape or to run. So it, it could have been in a contained area. Verse 3 tells us, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Pharaoh is going to think that he has the Hebrews trapped, that they're trapped in the wilderness. But God is the one who is setting him up for an ambush. But Pharaoh is about to get all washed up. Verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And that the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Who's going to make our bricks? And so he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea besides Pihahirath before Belzephon. Pharaoh and his cavalry found the Hebrews with their backs against the wall, against this wall of ocean. And I'm sure Pharaoh and all of his bloodthirsty troops were licking their chops. Here they've got the Hebrews all dressed up and nowhere to go. As Yul Brenner said in the movie, this is the work of a butcher, not a Pharaoh. So he thought. Verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, 
because there were no graves in Egypt? Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Man, how quickly they've forgotten the power of God, haven't they? How quickly they've forgotten those ten miraculous works and judgments God had worked in Egypt. Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. How ungrateful. How negative and unbelieving and skeptical. Here Israel reveals her true colors. Any faith that she had had or shown back in Egypt now disappears. Under pressure, that faith disappears. I hope that doesn't describe you tonight. I hope your faith doesn't disappear under pressure. When your back's against the wall, when things go against you, when it seems that it's curtains for you, I hope you don't give up. I hope your faith doesn't disappear. I hope you don't start moaning and groaning and wishing you were back in Egypt, wishing you were back to the things of the world. I hope you don't turn back to those things. God is about to work a great deliverance. You know, every time I get to this part in the Ten Commandments movie, and I see that little old Weasley Edward G. Robinson. What a Weasley little old guy. And, and he gets up and he gets in Moses' face and he starts smarting off and all. I, I want to I, I walk over to the television and just slap the screen, you know. I want to just slap him silly. Just shut his mouth. I mean, and yet I often wonder how, how many times I act like Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, I know. <laughs> God did miracles and he did wonders for these Hebrews. Bring them out of Egypt. Why can't he do wonders again? Guys, we all need to consider this. Let's apply this truth to our own situation. Hey, does God, listen, does God ever run out of miracles? No. Verse 13 tells us, And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Perhaps tonight you're facing an impossible situation. You're hemmed in. You've got nowhere to run. There's no escape, it seems, for you. Listen to these three things that Moses commands us. He says, do not be afraid. Don't cave into your fear or your doubt. Your faith is being tested. Understand that. Then he says, stand still. Your frantic efforts are only complicating the situation. They're only giving the enemy reason to boast. Just chill out for a while, would you? The Lord is going to fight this battle for you. And then see the salvation of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust in His hidden resources. He has ways and tools of working miracles that you know nothing about. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Notice the posture of faith is usually forwards, not backwards. God fills Moses in on his plan in verse 16. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground 
through the midst of the sea. And I wonder what Moses must have thought when he got those instructions. <laughs> I mean, God tells him to lift up his rod, stretch out his hand, then divide the sea. And I'm sure he's wondering how A plus B is going to equal C. I mean, dividing a C, no less. And I doubt if Moses had any concept of what was about to happen when he received those instructions. Moses sure didn't know how it was going to happen. All Moses knew was who told him it was going to happen. And when you don't know what is going to happen, and when you don't know how it's going to happen, you just need to really focus on who said it was going to happen. Because he can be trusted. All God really explains to Moses is why. He says, and I will indeed harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God is going to win a great victory here. He is going to gain honor over the Pharaoh. And there's a scene in the movie, I don't know, Matt didn't cut it just right. I was going to show it too where when it all happens and Yul Brenner finally comes back to his throne and he kind of slouches down and he says, the God of the Hebrews is the true God. And that's the confession God wanted out of the Pharaoh all along. He'll finally get it. Verse 19 says, And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel, notice that, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. Now, not only was Israel traveling with a cloud and a fire, but an angel of God was also traveling with the Hebrews. Don't overlook that. And who is it that often appears in the Old Testament as God's angel or his messenger? Often it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And I think it's intriguing to, to realize that Jesus may have also been leading and guiding the Hebrews through the wilderness. And so the angel in the cloud came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one. And it gave light by night to the other. So that the one did not come near the other all that night. God created some space between the charging Egyptians and the Hebrews. Now verses 21 and 22 give us a play-by-play -play of what happens next. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, unlike in the movie, when it happens instantly, apparently this was a process, I guess, that took all night, where the wind blew and parted the seas and, and, and then dried the ground so they wouldn't just be walking over into sludge. By daybreak, it was a dry pathway for them. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And imagine being one of these Hebrews watching all this take place from the shore. Can you imagine? I'll bet you didn't sleep that night. I suppose the Hebrews thought that the Egyptians were the rat, and that they were the cheese. But in reality, God is constructing here a big mousetrap. 
big enough to destroy the whole Egyptian army. And when the hedge of fire is removed, the Egyptians take the bait. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. Verse 25, and he took off their chariot wheels. Imagine that. God loosens the lug nuts. So that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. I mean, they're in hot pursuit when suddenly their, their wheels start wobbling. They lose their steering. And the Egyptians are the ones that are now trapped between these walls of water. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. For the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now skeptics have tried to rationalize this miracle away with many different theories. One man suggests that this east wind actually froze the sea. And the Hebrews sort of skated across the ice. That's how I reacted. That's pretty ridiculous. I mean, that requires a greater miracle than the one that actually took place, holding back the waters. Another man suggests that the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea in a marshy area, perhaps even on a sandbar where the water was only ankle deep. But if you accept that idea, it forces you to believe in even a greater miracle. For if the water was only ankle deep, well, then how in the world did God drown the whole Egyptian army in ankle deep water? Guys, God says what he means, and he means what he says. It's always best to take the Bible literally. Well, verse 30 tells us the outcome. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord. And believed the Lord. And also believed his servant Moses. And there we have Exodus chapter 14. Now, Exodus chapter 15 is the first psalm in the Bible. And they write a psalm to commemorate this great victory that God has done. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. For the horse and the rider has been thrown into the sea. And we'll read about that psalm next time. So, Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for